Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. Hey, I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Welcome back, Steve. (laughs) Welcome back to you as well. Because, as you said, this is both of ours. (laughs) We've been sitting on this first episode for weeks now as we've been trying to get it posted by Apple. So we are anxious to actually meet you, our adoring public, and find out what you think about this podcast. But so far, we don't know. So today we are going to be discussing, I believe, the cover dates for the books we're going to be discussing are March of 62 and May of 62, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. So in our first two episodes, we just covered one month each. This episode, Marvel was still not putting out a whole lot of comics at this point in 1962. So we are going to go ahead and cover basically February where they had no comics, March where they just had Fantastic Four number three, April they had no comics, May they had Fantastic Four number four, and Incredible Hulk number one. So we're going to be starting that series today. So we're going to be covering a nice chunk here, but it's just going to be those three monumentous Monumental. <laughs> what, sure. what words am I combining here? I, I momentous. Think you're combining momentous and monumental. <laughs> momentous and monumental. Yes. Monumentous uh, <laughs> episodes we're going to be covering today. Excellent. So let's go ahead and dive right on in here. One thing that I'll point out is that the Golden Age pricing has just switched to Silver Age pricing. Oh, right. oh, did the price go up? Yeah. So the first two issues of Fantastic Four, I believe, were 10 cents. I know the first one was. I'm pretty sure the second one was. This third one is now 12. Ah, ha, ha. Yes. And and no extra pages. <laughs> just just hitting hitting kids in the pocketbook. Yeah, that's a that's a 20% increase in prices. That's something else. So let's go ahead and start with Fantastic Four number three. And this issue is a real mixture of high points and low points. The villain and the story are bottom tier. <laughs> <laughs> well, of them are- I think it's I think it's uh-huh. easy to say that because of the verdict of history, where in the first two issues, we had the Mole Man and the Skrulls, both of whom would come back over and over and over again. And this time we have the Miracle Man, who would barely come back. I think he came back once in the 70s. But I'm going to disagree. I think that (laughs) the verdict of history has not been kind to the Miracle Man, but I think he's a very clever villain. I think that there's some basic holes in the story, but (laughs) let's go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't hang together. But so the Miracle Man is a stage magician who, of course, the Fantastic Four are just at a stage magician show like you do. And He is shows these amazing superpowers. He can fly. He can cut things in half that Ben Grimm can't cut in half, like Fantastic Four villain, the Molecule Man. He seems to have all power over matter and seems to have amazing powers. And we'll go ahead and cut to the end here. It turns out that it's all mass hypnosis. <laughs> which which doesn't really explain <laughs> most of the story. Well, once again, they're torn between whether or not this should basically be a monster book or a superhero book. They make some big decisions in terms of that this month, and yes. we'll talk about those. But there's still this moment about 10 pages in where the villain is like, for a movie premiere, they've made a huge sculpture of a monster. I could bring that monster to life, and a giant monster could attack the city again, not for the first time in this book. Then they're watching this on TV. They're watching this giant sculpture attack everybody on TV. Now, mass hypnosis, 
has to be pretty <laughs> damn good to work where people watching a TV show at home can all see a giant monster attacking the city. And then it later turns out that no giant monster was attacking the city and it was all mass hypnosis. And seemingly he has hypnotized all of the TV cameras that are pointing <laughs> at this event that everybody is watching at home and are seeing it equally. So yeah. it's, I can sort of see why the villain didn't return over and over again. It's the sort of thing where it feels very clever, a very clever solution to this issue's problem, but not really a villain for the ages, not really a villain that can return over and over again once his secret has been revealed. We'll get to this later, but the whole thing about when Johnny finally burns the monster down, I'm not giving anything away. The story is not that great. Johnny burns the monster down and he's like, but wait, it was still made of plaster and wood. How does that work? And I'm like, how would the hypnosis work that you would still see? that it was just plaster and wood when you burn it down. That's not a clue at that point. Let's go ahead and get into some specifics in the issue. So let's go ahead and start with the cover. So this is the okay. first issue of the Fantastic Four, one of the only <laughs> issues, period, I think, where the villain is not mentioned on the cover. So right away, they're not very proud of this villain. Instead, <laughs> they finally have costumes. This whole book started when Martin Goodman ordered Stan Lee, we want a superhero book like the Justice League. And then Stan Lee seemed very sort of reticent to give that to him. He's like, are you sure you don't just want another monster book? So the first two covers, they were just in civilian clothes fighting monsters and this issue there is no mention of a villain much less a monster on the cover they are flying around in a giant flying bathtub they are wearing bright blue outfits they are superheroes for the first time it says the fantastic four the greatest comics magazine in the world which would be their slogan for a long time in this great collector's item issue which isn't wrong you will see for the first time the amazing fantastic car the colorful new fantastic four costumes and other startling surprises also learn the secret of fantastic four's skyscraper hideout and it is a beautiful cover and it yeah. is uh it is in fact collector's item worthy as they as they <laughs> predicted yeah, yeah, this is an iconic cover, absolutely. And this is also the first time that we see Johnny torching up the way that he did then for the next... 30 years. Yeah. In the previous two issues, he looked like a big flame in the vague shape of a person. But right. now he looks very much like the Golden Age Human Torch, who is a different character, tended to look. He looks much more reminiscent of that. Yeah. This issue was also inked once again by Christopher Rule. I lied last time when I said he was never to be heard from again. Apparently, he inked this issue and issue four as well. But maybe that's when he dropped off the face of the earth. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I maybe just jump in here and say, according to marvel.fandom.com, it says that this issue is inked by Saul Brodsky. Really? Yeah. Okay. According to Marvel Unlimited, it was inked by Christopher Rule. That okay. is interesting. So I guess we don't know. Yeah, but maybe <laughs> someone out there in podcast land can tell us, or maybe we'll just cut all this. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't matter. We, two different official seeming sources have different have different information. Since we're trying to cover three issues today, I was wanting to go ahead and jump into some of the points yes. that I found interesting or remarkable. One of the things is, well, I guess you already talked about the Fantastic Car, and we actually see it for the first time in the book on page four. This vehicle gets a lot of guff over time of being called, as you mentioned it earlier, the flying bathtub. And they later come up with a much more Kirby tech looking contraption to replace it later. But it actually looks quite nice on that first panel where it appears on page four. But the thing I really wanted to jump to is page five. So uh -huh. page, page five is where we first see the real Baxter building. 
Yes. The flying bathtub lands on top of it. They're talking about how impressive it is that it lands itself and then it depresses into the ceiling to let them walk in the door. And then we have a little cutaway view of the top three floors of the Baxter building with all of its different stuff. And this is just gorgeous. This is Kirby at his best. It's funny, when we were kids, one of the things that mom was always impressed by this one drawing I did when I was like five of an airplane with a cutaway view just like this. Um, Actually, I think that probably came from Richard Scarry. I think he he did cutaway views like that. That's probably where I got that one. So yeah, so this is quintessential Kirby and or Richard Scarry. Yeah. So this is beautiful. It's also really mind-blowingly imaginative with all the different things they have, including the long-range passenger missile that can reach any part of the world in minutes. That has a Which little- is funny. We will. <laughs> it's going to be a long time before we see the Fantastic Four use anything like that. But before this episode is done, we will see the Soviets use something like that in the Hulk number one. Yes. And I guess ICBMs were a really new thing at the time. And there was a sense of like, oh, you know, the Soviets now have a way to launch missiles at us from the Soviet Union, which is absolutely terrifying. And what if you could use those to get around? And I think (laughs) in later issues, they'll actually call this their ICBM, which was the hot phrase at the time. Um, so this is a hot concept in science fiction generally around now. In in the original novel of The Man in the High Castle, their planes are very similar to what this is describing here. Uh, you know, yeah. go up in the stratosphere and come back down and, you know, it's just like four hours from Germany to San Francisco or whatever. This is a gorgeous page. Page seven is where we are introduced to the new Fantastic Four costumes. Of course, ignoring the fact that we just saw them on the cover. But yes. this is where Sue introduces them to everyone else. We are going to have a lot of indecision in terms terms of how Thing is going to look with his costume through even just this issue uh, and then going a little bit forward for the next little bit. When his costume is first introduced, it actually has a helmet on it. And I love his line when she's fitting the helmet on his head. He says, I ain't going to wear this fool outfit. If this was later, I would say (laughs) that they had made a deal with a action figure company who was like, oh, the thing needs to have a helmet and boots and all these things that he later wouldn't have. And then Stan and Jack were going like, uh, no, we're not going to go for that. <laughs> because, because, yeah, right away they're giving him a costume that he refuses to wear. That reminds me actually of the story of the Spider-Man car from the 70s. Yes. So that, was, that was something similar to that, wasn't it? Yeah, the toy company <laughs> insisted they give Spider-Man a car. So in the comics, they just had a licensing company insisting on giving him a car and then him refusing <laughs> to use it. <laughs> yeah, or I think of trying to use it once, but being a lifelong New Yorker, he had no idea how to drive. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, but anyway, I, I love that line. He sounds like Mr. T when he says yes. that about his helmet. The next page, page eight. Now, this is once again one of these things that you just seem to be throwing everything against the wall and just whatever sticks is what they run with. One of the things they throw against the wall here is having the police commissioner be a character that they might interact with on a regular basis, a la Batman. At this point, oh, we've got to warn the commissioner. It says, but the commissioner has already been warned. And he has this note that says, I, comma, the miracle man, comma, declare war on the whole human race. He sent this to the commissioner of police in New York City, by the way, to the whole human race. I intend to conquer the earth. It's like, okay, dude, you, you know, I don't think you know how this works, but that's fine. Well, Um, it could be that he sent this to many people and we're just seeing this one person get it. It could be he sent, this could have been a mass mailing that he sent to like, you know, 300 different important people. And we're just seeing what one person receive it. Yeah, sure. Why not? We'll go with that. By the way, have you noticed that in this, in this iteration of the Fantastic Car, they have each little segment that breaks out has its own bench seat, but nobody ever sits down in them. 
Everybody's only ever standing up, which looks dangerous AF, by the way. But uh, everyone's just sort of standing up with these, like, you know, working these little joysticks on this thing. And I'm like, why Why do they have seats? <laughs> yes. So I'm on page nine, where, where the Fantastic Car first splits up. And that's where everybody yes. has to use the controls, and therefore nobody is sitting down. And what gets me is at the bottom of that page, the Miracle Man knocks out Mr. Fantastic with a brick. Yes. Which, what? I, you know, it's one of these things where, like, you're reading Superman comics and suddenly a trapdoor opens up underneath him and he falls. And it brings up this question of is Superman flying all the time or is he only flying when he needs to fly? So if you open up a trapdoor underneath Superman, does he fall? And if you throw a brick at Reed Richards, does it just bounce off? Is he rubbery all the time or is he only rubbery when he needs to be rubbery? Right. Well, also, I guess one other thing you could say is that he had just stretched himself, and I quote, to its absolute limit. And he was in the middle of that stretching when the Miracle Man hit him in the head with brick. So yeah. perhaps he was already at the limits of his abilities. And he was he was taught. <laughs> T-A-U-T, not yes. T-A-U-G-H-T. You've right. got to be carefully taught. He was taught. Yes. Then after this incident with the brick, he goes back to the commissioner once again. And the commissioner's reaming out Mr. Fantastic for being so terrible at getting the Miracle Man. And I really do get sort of the feeling that the thought was, oh, maybe this is going to be a regular thing. You know, they're interacting with the commissioner. Hey, they're trying to be, you know, super law enforcement. And so they deal with regular law enforcement. But I don't think we ever see this commissioner again. No. So meanwhile, then we're on to the atomic tank. Yes. Uh, atomic tank. Like, does it have atomic missiles that it shoots? Is it? I think that's the idea. An engine. Okay. Maybe no, so. I think I think it's got some sort of atomic weapon on the atomic tank was my was my impression. So, so tactical nuclear weapons, basically. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. Well, maybe so. Uh, in, in that case, that's horrifying. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> um, and, well, don't uh, worry. It's not going to fall into the wrong hands. Oh, wait. <laughs> Meanwhile, on page 11, when we get to chapter three, the flame that died. The first thing the, the thing does is he takes off his helmet and rips off his shirt. Yes. Uh, just like, you know, refers to it as a monkey suit. So then we get to the point where, as I said, the torch burns down the monster that's been brought to life. And he's like... But how could it still be plaster and wood? That doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, hypnotism does not explain all this, people. You pointed out in the last couple of issues that in these early issues of Fantastic Four, Sue is very on the ball, very competent, yeah. very independent, which changes later that she, they fall very much into more of the, you know, husband and wife or you know, boyfriend and girlfriend shtick of, you know, really the 50s, even though this is the 60s, in later months. But at this point, it's not. And so on the bottom of page 13, Johnny has been extinguished and the thing is buried and I forget what's going on with the read at that point. But Sue is like, okay, well, everyone's been knocked out of action. But you know what? one invisible girl can sometimes accomplish more than a battalion. And so she just goes out to just get stuff done. (laughs) Yeah, well, she's like barking into 
the radio. Attention thing. Order troops to fall back. Right. I will tackle Miracle Man alone. It's our only chance. Over and out. A one invisible girl can sometimes accomplish more than a battalion. The Miracle Man is driving off with the atomic tank, but this time he's got an unseen passenger. And so it's this really badass moment where we're like, oh, hell yeah, Sue. Unfortunately, <laughs> everything is for naught. She is hypnotized into summoning the Fantastic Four. So all this does is lead everybody into a trap. She doesn't actually accomplish much, but it feels very badass at the time until it all turns out to be for not the other guys stuff they were doing all sort of fell apart too you know so it's, right. it's not really like she is being shown as any more incompetent than the rest of the folks in this issue but the fact that she's giving orders she is taking the initiative she isn't asking for permission she's just like all right hey you tell them to do this meanwhile i'm gonna go do this over and out <laughs> right it's, it's pretty cool <laughs> Oh, well, yeah, that's, yeah, but then she gets is. caught by a dog, which is going to be a problem <laughs> for any. It turns out the Miracle Man has a dog that can smell her, and then he is able to hypnotize her. So then we get our usual recap of their origin, uh, talk about how they got their powers. Apparently, we have not yet quite finished up the whole Ben Grimm has a thing for Sue plotline. Uh, yes, not really plot line, I was, I was shocked to hear that was still going on. Ben says, <laughs> bah, I don't want to be normal for a few minutes. I want to be Ben Grimm again. I want Sue to look at me the way she looks at you. To which Johnny says, my kid sister, don't kid yourself thing. She wouldn't go for you if you looked like Rock Hudson, which is the first, I think, of many, many comparisons to contemporary movie stars that we will get in Stanley Comics. This is, I think he was generally pretty timeless in those first two issues. But now we're starting to get the, hey, everybody, it's 1962. Let's mention the contemporary celebrity references of 1962, which will become a major thing. Oh, and just wait until we get to 1966, which is the year of Soupy Sales. <laughs> yes. Like, both Stan <laughs> and Roy mentioned Soupy Sales like six different times in the first six months of that year, which is a bizarrely dated reference. But yes, we'll get to that. <laughs> so apparently 66 was his year. So when we get to Chapter 5, the final challenge... They just happen to find this whole collection of antiques race cars that they jump in. The tire is blown out and Reed turns himself into a replacement tire. And the way he has wrapped himself around the wheel, his face is going to actually be hitting the pavement. Revolution. <laughs> yes. You would think he could have done it a little better. You would think he could have had his face be on the inside of the wheel instead of on the outside of the wheel. Yes, exactly. Yeah. This is like one of the few Plastic Man type things he does. He generally does not turn himself into objects. He is more just a sort of stretchy man, sort of a India rubber band, as they used to say. He is someone who will stretch himself in various directions, but does not generally turn himself into shapes. But this is a fairly ridiculous moment where he becomes a tire (laughs) on the car. Plastic Man was originally going to be called India rubber man, if I'm not mistaken. And that they, they made him change it to Plastic Man because it sounded more modern. It does. Although it's funny, you know, if you ever played the Lego Marvel superheroes video games, whenever you have to play uh, Mr. Fantastic, he basically is just Plastic Man. He's turning himself into a key and he's turning himself into uh, a, you know, this, that and the other. Yeah, it's uh, it's really sort of weird. So then finally we get to page 23, final page of this story, and it was all hypnosis, which makes zero sense. Reed immediately knows that because uh, Miracle Man was kind of temporarily blinded by a bright flash. Therefore, he knows that his uh, hypnotism powers are gone forever. 
in this case, they're almost accurate in that this person will never <laughs> menace us again. But for some reason, they like to wrap up these issues very definitively. The issue finishes up with the Human Torch taking offense to some verbal abuse from the thing and saying, that's it, I'm getting out of here, I'm quitting this combo, and 23 skidoo, whatever. And so then, <laughs> sorry, that's the wrong, that's the wrong uh, uh, youth decade, isn't it? Wrong, so, wrong Human Torch. <laughs> exactly. He flies off and, and apparently Reed is worried that he might enslave mankind or something like that. Sue says, oh, Reed, what will become of him? And Reed says, it's not him I'm worried about. It's mankind. For what will we do? What can we do if he should turn against us? And this was something they worried about with Ben, uh, the thing in the first two issues. And now there's a general sort of current here of the Fantastic Four are fighting monsters, but they're sort of like monsters and we have to be afraid of them. Yeah, absolutely. There are things about this issue I really, really like. And there are things about this issue that I could do without. (laughs) One thing that I thought was weird is that Reed, they're gaining clues the whole time that this is all mass hypnosis. And then I was expecting Reed, or even better, one of the other people in the theme, to suddenly go like, wait a second, I've put all the clues together, it's mass hypnosis. But instead, Johnny just flashes brightly, sort of as a coincidence, as he's trying to do something else. And then Reed only figures it out once that has blinded and depowered the Miracle Man. I always like Stan's stories of cleverly solving mysteries. And I would hope that they would cleverly solve this mystery instead of stumbling upon the solution, which I think weakens the story. Yeah, but I I love the introduction of Baxter building. I really kind of like the first appearance of the so-called flying bathtub, despite its reputation. And I like the new costumes. I like a lot of things in here, but the villain is mediocre and the story itself makes no sense at all. But that's fine. We had a lot of fun. Yeah. Next, we're moving on to May. Cover date, May 1962. And this is the month when I really feel that the Marvel Universe started to actually be born. Yeah. The first two issues of the Fantastic Four, obviously we were introducing things like the Mole Man and the Scrolls that would carry on through the years, and the Fantastic Four for that matter. And then issue three, we then get the costumes and the secret hideout and the, the vehicles. But now in May of this year, We've got Fantastic Four number four, and we've got Hulk number one. So Hulk number one, even though they don't make it clear that they're happening in the same universe yet, they are going to be. And so we're then going to be introduced to the first new character, other than Hank Pym, who once again has not yet been retconned in anything other than just one of the dozens and dozens of monster stories that we've seen. We're going to be seeing the Hulk in a little bit. But first of all, I think we should talk about Fantastic Four number four. Yes. And this is not a Fantastic Four podcast. We are not just talking about Fantastic Four, but it just... (laughs) so happens that is what marvel published first a lot of fantastic four so we're going to cover issues three and four today but we're also going to cover hulk number one let's go ahead and get to fantastic four number four it says on the cover the coming of the submariner by the way are we agreed on mariner instead of mariner when i was a little kid i thought it was submariner but i am pretty sure it's supposed to be submariner Yeah, he has not appeared in the MCU for various legal reasons, so we don't have that to fall back on in terms of pronunciation. But I'm going to say Submariner. So it says, The Coming of the Submariner, we have a cover where the Submariner is, Namor the Submariner in his little swimsuit is carrying Sue Storm into the ocean, chased by Reed, Ben, and Johnny. And Johnny is saying, stop him. If the Submariner reaches the water, he'll become invincible. 
Matt, in your copy of this that you're looking at, what color are Namor's Speedos? They are orangish red. I just wanted to double check and make sure that it wasn't something that had been recolored in this one. Yeah, and that's a little bit odd. He's almost universally wearing green swim trunks. But in this one, for some reason, they color him red. But yeah, and this is a great cover. Good composition, good energy. So Ben is still wearing boots. So there's still a little remnant of overdressed Ben. Uh, So uh, (laughs) soon the boots will fall away. Yes. And when we look on page number one, it does specifically say at a secret skyscraper hideout in the caverns of New York, uh-huh. three of the most fantastic humans on the earth are found. But where is the fourth? You know, they, they make it very explicit here that it's New York. Although, as I said, they seem to still go back and forth on that as we go forward. Oh, by the way, art credits. Once again, I don't know what yours says, but this tells me that this is once again still inked by Christopher Rule. My source says Saul Brodsky. That is a mystery to be tracked down. Yes, but good inking. If both of our sources say that issue and this issue are inked by the same person, and I think the inking looks great. I think it looks fine. One of the things I'm going to talk about is how when we get to Hulk, that one is inked by Paul Reinman, who is yeah, my... that's what my source says too. Right, who is my favorite of the, the Kirby inkers from the first two years. Yeah, I would agree. This inking is fine, but... I'm like, oh, but I've just gone back and looked at that Paul Reinman inking. So it's not that. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. Uh, oh, and and Ben looks particularly ugly in this issue. Yeah. Especially in the back half of the story. But, you know, even in the first page, just, yeah, he looks rough. We get a, a rehash of what happened last issue, but oddly leaves out the fact that it was all just hypnosis. Yeah. But so this is very strange. This is the first issue in which we pick up from the previous issue, in yes. which the previous issue ended on a cliffhanger. That was the first time that happened. And then here we pick up right where it left off. And then we even have flashback to go like, hey, here's what happened in the last issue in case you didn't get it. So obviously there were no comic book stores at the time. There was no direct buying of comics. All comic books were sold on the newsstand. It was very hard to assume that the same kid would be seeing this comic on the newsstand that they saw last month. But already Marvel Comics is starting to move in that direction, which DC Comics was still very much not doing. You would never have a Batman comic in 1962, which would end on a cliffhanger and be picked up the next week. And there would be very little continuity between series and uh, DC as well. That was always my impression of the main difference between Marvel and DC, is Marvel felt like a cohesive universe, largely because of primarily Stan Lee's work in collaboration with Kirby and Ditko and, and others, primarily Stan Lee as sort of this creative director for the whole thing, making it a cohesive universe, as opposed to in DC, where different companies have merged in together over the years, and everyone's in their own imaginary city, and every superhero has their own individual villains gallery, and you're never going to see Superman fighting the Joker, or Batman fighting Lex Luthor. That's one of the things I always find is made Marvel different, and gave them sort of an edge in many ways. Oh, yeah. Certainly as a kid, many years before I started reading DC, it was all Marvel at first. And it was because there was sort of a sense that if you read one Marvel book, you had to read them all. And and I liked that. I liked the sense of like, oh, my God, it's all one huge thing. It's blowing my mind. Whereas right. DC, there wasn't that sense. And by the time I felt like I had to buy every Marvel book, then the last thing I wanted to do was buy DC books because it's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh, my God, finally a comic I don't have to read. Meanwhile, they're doing a big marketing push for the Hulk in this issue. Yeah, which is annoying. It's always (laughs) annoying whenever they have ads on pages of story. And at the bottom of the page of story, it says the Hulk is coming. 
ending exclamation point. And we'll have that throughout the book, either at the very top of the page or at the very bottom of the page. I'll, Who is the Hulk? You've never seen anything like the Hulk. So yeah, that is, especially for such a historic issue to then go back through this. And I mean, on one hand, it's, oh, it sort of takes away from the impact of the issue. But on the other hand, it's, oh, but this is sort of reminding you, this is kind of the birth of the Marvel Universe at this moment. Right, because they're not having ads for Two Gun Kid or for Tales of Suspense. They're only having ads for the Hulk. So there is a sense that right away, okay, the Hulk really is supposed to be the first indication that this book is sharing a special world with the Hulk that it is not sharing with Marvel's Western comics or things like that. Well, the other thing is that the Hulk was a number one issue. And as you said, you know, without comic stores and, you know, just everything coming out through newsstands, kids might just feel like, oh, well, I'm getting my usual comics that I'm getting. And, you know, I like this character. I like that character. The Hulk, what's that? And this would be a way to bring him in, even if it weren't supposed to be part of this. I could see that either way. You know what I mean? Right. On page three, when they're all heading off to look for Johnny, they get in their flying bathtub and they leave Johnny's section of the flying bathtub behind because they don't need it because they're going to split up and do their own stuff. And so they don't want that extra that extra piece of baggage out there. It's all very sad. But then when the invisible woman goes to look for Johnny, okay, it makes sense for her to be invisible if she's trying to surveil teenagers and see if her teenage brother is out here somewhere. But what doesn't make sense is then when she gets thirsty, she goes to a lunch counter and gets herself a Coke that she drinks while invisible. Uh, and I'm like, were you invisible when you got the beverage? <laughs> I think she's just stealing somebody's Coke. <laughs> kind of like when she took the cab while invisible. And was that issue one or issue two? Issue yeah. one. Right. Yeah. They just like showing her do weird things while invisible just to freak other people out, which the whole idea of being invisible is that you're not supposed to be freaking other people out. You're not supposed to be calling attention to yourself, but she does it backwards to a certain extent. <laughs> Although she is not being nearly as dumb as Reed is in this sequence. Yeah. It's like Reed doesn't know how to human. <laughs> like, That'll be a recurring he, theme, I think. <laughs> he's like, this human suit is itchy. You know, it's, it's just <laughs> not quite. So he he sees a bunch of bikers. And it's weird. There's like shrubbery on the side of the road. And I'm like, is this out in Jersey? Like, where are they right now? You see some bikers that look right out of... The wild uh, one. The wild one, thank you. Reed just lifts one of them up off his bike, mid-ride. The motorcycle is clearly still going on without him, and he just picks the guy up over his head, and he's like, hey, have you seen where Johnny Storm is? No? I've got no more time to waste with you. And then just chucks him back and then just walks off somewhere else. <laughs> like, what? I mean, I think there's an idea that bikers are disreputable people, and this is the only way to deal with them. So it's like, Mr. Fantastic, gee, I, I never knew you were for real. And he goes, I'm real enough, son. But if you don't know where Johnny Storm is, I have no more time to waste with you. I think that you got to be rough with bikers. <laughs> That's our lesson for today. So then we finally catch up with Johnny, and he is, once again, souping up cars at a hot rod shop, Swanson's Garage. And he is wearing a green shirt with a white t-shirt underneath. His friend is wearing, you know, a cap, a blue shirt with a white t-shirt underneath. But then there's two of their friends who are hanging out wearing suits and ties. And <laughs> this is a general thing that Ditko does this for a long time in Spider-Man, is having teenagers hanging out wearing suits and ties. And I think this was an actual thing. If you watch 
Martin Scorsese's first movie, Who's That Knocking at My Door, from like 1967. You've still got basically teenagers hanging out in suits and ties on the weekend. If you're going specifically to a garage, then I would think that would be the last place you would want to wear a suit and tie. But it's a general thing we're going to see a lot of in these early Marvel comics is teenagers hanging out wearing suits and ties. Absolutely. And I can buy it a little bit more in 1962. By the time we're getting to like 66, 67, it seems a little bit more odd. Yeah. But, you know, Kirby keeps it up. Ditko keeps it up till he leaves. And Kirby still does after a while. I heard someone say that everyone in a Kirby comic book looks like he's walking around sometime in like 1952. Yeah. So. <laughs> but then it turns out that the thing knows Johnny the best of anyone on the team. He's the only one who figured out where Johnny is. He goes to the garage. He knows that he's got Johnny covered because he knows Johnny can't flame on when he's surrounded by so much gasoline. He attacks him. Then he becomes Ben Grimm again, which is a recurring theme. We're now definitely in New York because then Johnny, and this is absolutely fascinating, goes to the Bowery. Now, of course, if any of you have been to New York anytime recently, you'll know that the Bowery is still the name of a street, and it is now one of the wealthiest areas of New York City. But at the time, the Bowery was the white slump where poor white people lived, desperately poor. And the whole thing, there's a woman in sort of a babushka, and there looks like someone selling fruit out of a fruit cart with a, with a big wagon wheel on it. And yes. the whole thing feels very much like where poor Jewish people lived. This feels very much like the Lower East Side where Jewish immigrants lived in the 1940s. Which, of course, would be where Stan and Jack both came from. This is very much like Stan and Jack as, I guess, they were sons of Jewish immigrants. And so. this is very much like the sort of poor Lower East Side type of background they would have. I don't know if either of their families actually passed through the Lower East Side. But it is kind of fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. That does look like, you know, that fruit cart would have been pulled by a horse over there. It does look like it. Yeah. One of the things I like is when Johnny, of course, utterly coincidentally happens to find a 15-year-old Submariner comic book sitting in the flop house that he's uh, rented for the night. One of the things I like is that the picture of the Submariner on the cover that you see, that looks like it's trying to look like Will Everett. Yeah. So yeah. So Will Everett was the creator of the Submariner, would write and draw the original issues in the 1940s. Human Torch is run across an old comic book in the flop house of the Submariner. And yeah, it Jack Kirby is doing his best Will Everett on the cover here. It's kind of nice to see that. So then someone's like, hey, you're reading about the Submariner. Huh? We got a guy as strong as him over here. Hey, wake up, old man. And then they're trying to taunt him into showing how strong he is, at which point he shows them how strong he is by just smacking one of the guys, which then pisses them off. They're like, hey, why is this grumpy old man who we know is grumpy and very strong being mean to us just because we were taunting him? (laughs) Let's get him, guys. It just seems like you guys have made a lot of poor choices in your lives, and this is one of them. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) To be fair... These are actual, honest-to-God, Bowery bums. You know, this is infamously bad at decision-making. Hmm, I wonder, uh, I wonder how you ended up in this life. Not that everyone ends up there because of their own doing, but this particular group, I'm betting it's their own doing based on how they're acting here. So then Johnny is like, okay, this old man who is very strong, let's go ahead and shave his beard off with flame, which is risky. <laughs> so he lights up a finger, shaves the guy's beard off with flame. So they've just established that in this world, there are comic books from the 1940s, which are perceived as being comic books from the 1940s, not perceived as pieces of history. But then he says, wait, his face. No, it can't be. It is. It is. He's he's the Submariner. So right away, 
Whoa. Okay. So now, or at least some of Marvel's 1940s comics are revealed to still be in continuity. So this happens over and over again in comics where they'll have a continuity reboot and it lasts for a few issues. And then they'll go like, hey, wait just a second. Why'd we kick all those other books out of continuity? Let's bring them back. (laughs) Now, of course, you've got this problem here in that the Human Torch is very much a reboot character. When he appeared in Fantastic Four number one, nobody said, oh, well, we already had a superhero who was called the Human Torch who looked just like you, who was around for years. And no, it was implied because nobody recognized the Human Torch because he seemed to come up with that name all by himself that all the previous Human Torch comics had not happened. But of course, Marvel was the very first company back in the 1940s to have their heroes cross over. And the very first superhero crossover of any company was the Submariner and the Human Torch. But here, the Submariner does not recognize the Human Torch. Like, oh, I used to have a friend called the Human Torch. So they do this all the time in comics. They're bringing some of the old comics back into continuity, but not all of them. I wonder if the Submariner's reappearance here might have been something that came from Goodman. My understanding is that Goodman was a huge Will Everett fan. Mm-hmm. Not just, you know, hey, I'm a publisher and this is an artist who does some good stuff, but he was the one artist who he like genuinely liked his stuff. So I kind of wonder whether he might have said like, hey, maybe you could bring that back and maybe we could get Will to come back and do some work. Right. I wonder because Will Everett does end up coming back and doing some work for them in the next couple of years. Right. So meanwhile, on page 11, Reed is still just being a weirdo. You know, hey, let me stretch up above these skyscrapers and grab onto the front wheel of that helicopter and ask them, hey, have you seen Johnny Storm? (laughs) Like, what? And then, oh, now I'll stretch over to this elevated rail car and stick my head in the window and say, hey, could you keep an eye out for this kid? What are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Showing off his stretching. Yes, just showing off his stretching. But he, he really just does come across in this issue as just a weird bumbling fool. If it had turned out later that it's like, oh, that wasn't actually Reed in that story. He was actually some alien who was trying to pretend to be Reed and didn't know what humans did. I would have said, oh yeah, okay, that finally makes sense. (laughs) There's there's still time to do that retcon. We can go ahead. There's never, it's never not the time to do that retcon. So then Sue correctly guesses that she should go to the Bowery. She says, the Bowery, haven of lost souls. I can't believe that Johnny would ever come here. But then she just misses him. So she walks on. Meanwhile, Johnny then decides, hey, we found the Submariner. He seems to have lost his memory. The best way to restore his memory would be to dump him in the sea, which brings up this issue of to what degree is he remembered as being a hero or a villain? Because Johnny is miscalculating here. He sort of (laughs) does not remember that, oh, yeah, the Submariner was kind of a hero in 40s comics, and he was kind of a villain. And it turns out he is on the more villainous side at this point because, well, even so, he doesn't instantly resort to villainy. He then goes and tries to find his undersea kingdom, which seemingly he gets to real fast because he gets there, finds his undersea kingdom, checks it out, and then makes it back while Johnny is still standing on that pier. But still standing on that pier saying, well, if he's not the Submariner and he's just some Bowery bum, I'll dive in and save him. So he hasn't dived in to save him yet at this point. So this has been a really quick trip. (laughs) Yes. But the Submariner goes and finds his undersea kingdom. And this is really the first time we get any sort of anti-militaristic sentiment from Stanley, which will be much more common later on, will be rare in these early issues where, but his undersea kingdom has been destroyed. So it's destroyed. It's all destroyed. That glow 
flow in the water, it's radioactivity. Now I know what happened. The humans did it unthinkingly with their accursed atomic tests. My people cannot be harmed by radiation, but where their homes are destroyed, they must have gone elsewhere. The oceans are vast, endless. How shall I ever find them? So then he comes back and now he is a villain. So a a couple of thoughts about this. One, when the Submariner last appeared in comics, it was before the Comics Code Authority. So before the Comics Code Authority, you could be much, much more ambiguous about whether somebody was a hero or a villain. They could be a hero one day, a villain the next. It doesn't matter because nothing matters, you know. (laughs) So, you know, now this is in the Comics Code world. But, of course, Marvel is really going to be pushing those boundaries a lot more in the next upcoming time. Another thing I thought about was when he says the humans did it unthinkingly with their accursed atomic tests. Remember in Fantastic Four number one when they sent some nukes off to explode (laughs) harmlessly in the sea? (laughs) Good point. Yes. Yes, a nuclear missile was shot after Johnny and Reed tossed it harmlessly into the sea. (laughs) This could all be Reed's fault. Very much could. The other note that I had is that on panel three of this page, I wonder if this might be another situation of Stan changing intention a little bit with the dialogue. When he says, my people could not be harmed by radiation, but when their homes were destroyed, they must have gone elsewhere. The oceans are vast and endless. How will I ever find them? I am guessing the original intention was that everyone in Atlantis was dead. You think that's what Jack intended and then Stan decided otherwise? If so, it was wise of Stan to not end the story potential of all these Atlanteans because who boy will they get lots of stories out of him searching for his people and finding his people and being rejected by his people and leading his people in, leading his people against the surface world. Yeah, all sorts of political intrigue among his people. That was clever of Stan to quickly establish that the Atlanteans are still out there. That's just a hypothesis on my part. I have no no basis for making that other than just the text itself. That feels like one of Stan's rewrites of what was going on. So now at this point, he has determined that he is now going to be a villain. The rest of the Fantastic Four sees the Fantastic Four flare go up, and they're like, ah, that must be Johnny. We're going to go get him. And... The thing, once again, just looks particularly <laughs> hideous he does. at this point. <laughs> and Reed is actually looking younger and more handsome than usual in, uh, on page 14 here. I don't, I don't know. It's uh, something like hair. Yeah. yeah, he's got wavier hair. Well, and it's harder to tell that the temples are white and he's got wavier, wavier hair. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I thought it was going to be far more common for men in their 40s to have gray temples. <laughs> and not the top of their head. And I quickly discovered, I knew my father didn't have it, but I figured there must be lots of men out there that have the, the gray or white temples. But I eventually realized that's just sort of their way of saying like salt and pepper hair. Right. The comics coloring wasn't good enough to do salt and pepper hair. So then they just added all white below the temples and all brown above. Although I have seen it before in real life. Yeah, I have. Um, I, and yeah. I always think of Marvel Comics. Yes, yes. No, there, there was this one picture where I saw one time I was walking by a, an office somewhere in Washington, D.C., and I saw a picture of, like, the people who were in this company, and this one dude was just like, that guy looks like a Marvel <laughs> comic book villain. He had a black beard with these, like, white stripes that were very pronounced and defined heading down in these, you know, symmetric patterns on his beard. And I'm like, oh my god, I actually took a picture of the thing <laughs> to be like, I don't believe this. The salt and pepper hair uh, is represented here by just white at the temples and perhaps along the back. 
Yeah. So once again, we have, for the fourth issue in a row, a monster. And so the Summoner decides he's going to take a giant horn, a trumpet horn. Only one thing can arouse the monster, this trumpet horn, which my ancestors buried here centuries ago. He is going to use the giant horn to summon Giganto, who is basically a huge whale with arms and legs and hands and feet. And he summons it to attack the city, which it does. And it is quite a sequence. He is a cross between Blowhole and Cthulhu. <laughs> Wait, who was Blowhole? <laughs> On the Tick Saturday morning cartoon. <laughs> he, he was the big whale with arms and legs that came out of the ocean and inexplicably decided to go jogging across America. Because, <laughs> you know, they're saying, there he is, still slumbering, as he has done for ages, the largest living thing in all the world, the deadly giganto, the one thing that can rouse him, this trumpet horn my ancestors buried centuries ago. I've done it. I've awakened the monster. Nothing can stop him now. It just feels very H.P. Lovecraft in some way. Yeah, I wonder if Stan read those, maybe maybe outside his purview. The thing straps a gigantic bomb to his back and climbs down Giganto's throat and blows him to hell and back. But but one thing I want to point out before we get to all that, New York City is evacuated in one panel. Yeah. They, they say, oh, we got to evacuate New York. And then the very next panel, and through the now silent canyons of the deserted city, the nation's most powerful. It's like, wait, what? New York City's kind of big, yo. <laughs> so then the thing climbs down into his throat, climbs down to his stomach, blows him up from the inside, says he did it. The monster is dead. Of course, now they have this huge running carcass. Then Sue, once again, showing a little initiative, manages to grab the horn away from him. Uh, he does not see her coming. She gets away with it. But then he does manage to track her down, tackle her. But then, of course, she becomes visible, and he instantly falls in love. He says, <laughs> here is a prize worth catching. To what degree is Namor just into Sue, and to what degree is Sue into Namor? And here, you know, it's interesting. She doesn't say no right away. She, He says, you're the loveliest human I've ever seen. If you will be my pride, I might show mercy to the rest of your pitiful race. And she just says, how can I make such a choice? But it's pretty clear she is not into him. No, Prince Namor, you mustn't. I'll do anything. I'll become your bride. He is, of course, like, uh, you speak as though you're sacrificing yourself. I am the hottest guy around. <laughs> he knows when he's not wanted attacks them, announces he's going to attack everybody, and then Johnny makes a big tornado, sucks both the gigantic carcass of Giganto and the Submariner, sends them both out to sea, dumps them in the sea. Submariner says, I'm not beaten yet. They're stronger than I thought, but not strong enough to finish Namor. I'll be back. Do you hear me? I'll be back. Right away, the thing is like, you shouldn't let him return to the sea, Torch. I've got a hunch <laughs> he'll be back. <laughs> Mr. Fantastic says, if he dares return, he'll find us waiting. I swear it. And then we have the end. But Prince Namor was back two issues later. The thing was right. This was not maybe the best long-term plan. But this is very different from the previous issues where they're like, and now we'll never have to worry about that menace again, as they right. made clear in the first three issues. Here they're saying like, nope, this is going to be a returning menace. You screwed up, Johnny. We should have wrapped this one up more definitively and indeed boy oh boy does thing turn out to be right this is a big messy issue that opens up a whole can of worms brings some but not all of the 40s comics back into continuity i think that they've got their first really great villain here i mean the scrolls are great but namor will turn out to be a huge part of these early issues of fantastic four is would later spin off into his own comic he is great in this issue this is a great issue it turned out to be momentous for many reasons. Oddly enough, I've seen a number of people point out that Marvel 
Marvel number four issues tend to have stuff like this, right? Yes. So it was Fantastic Four number four. They bring back the Golden Age Submariner. Avengers number four. They bring back the Golden Age Captain America. Good point. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Uh, and then, <laughs> and then I think it was like what uh, I think it was Avengers Annual number four is when they somehow reintroduced the original Human Torch or something like that. No, 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 that was no. Fantastic Four Annual number four. So now we've got our second number one. Fantastic Four very boldly started with number one, even though they weren't allowed to publish any additional comics due to the fact that DC was distributing their books. But they went ahead and squeezed another number one into the schedule. I think at this point DC is probably caught wise to that. I think they've. Had had to cancel a book to make room for the Fantastic Four, and I think they've had to cancel another book. Sorry, I should know my research better to make room for the Hulk because the Hulk was a very bold launch. Once again, this was not just a monster story in the back of Tales to Astonish. No, we are starting with his own book with full length stories. We're going to do the Incredible Hulk number one. Now, as it would turn out, this would not be as successful as the Fantastic Four. It would get canceled after issue six. The Hulk would disappear for quite some time. But for the next six episodes of this podcast, we're going to go ahead and have these first six issues of The Incredible Hulk. It would be many years until he had his own full-length comic again, but he's going to have one for six months here at the very beginning of the Marvel Universe. This issue in particular is I, I really, really like. Some of the other first six issues I have some quibbles with, but this one I generally really like. So we begin with The Incredible Hulk number one. It says, the strangest man of all time. Fantasy as you like it, which is interesting. That was one of the words they were allowed to use by the Comics Code Authority. They weren't allowed to say horror. They weren't allowed to say various words. But they could say fantasy, which is a word that they used in sort of unusual ways. I wouldn't call this a (laughs) fantasy comic. Fantasy as you like it. Is he man or monster or is he both? And so we have a picture of the Hulk transforming on the cover on The original cover here, Bruce Banner looks blonde on the cover, and he is, of course, transforming into a gray Hulk. The Hulk will be gray for this entire first issue, and then mysteriously become green in the second issue and be green pretty much from that point on, although many years later, they did bring the gray Hulk back. But apparently, they made the change because of coloring. They thought the gray looked spotchy, and they thought green would look less spotchy color printing technology in comics was just not that great at the time. And so uh, grays were particularly hard for them to do. So yeah, they uh, said, oh, we'll just make them green. Yeah, as you said, years later, uh, when they try to make continuity points out of various things that were all just Dan and Jack just throwing things against the wall, see if it sticks, it doesn't, let's do this instead. Then they turn those things into plot points later. So yeah, many, many years later, they then have him turn back into the Gray Hulk, where he will, his personality will be much more like the Hulk we see in this first issue. Yes, and this Hulk is very different. He speaks in full sentences. He uses the word I, and this is be generally true. Generally true, it'll take many years before the Hulk starts talking like Hulk smash. The Hulk was always one of my favorite comics as a kid, maybe my favorite comics as a kid. Bill Mantlo was writing it at the time, who was an absolutely fantastic writer. One of the things I've always loved about the Hulk, and this starts right away, his status quo is constantly in flux. The rules of when the Hulk changes and why he changes and 
how many people know about his changes are just constantly changing. And they did an epic storyline in the Hulk when I was a kid where he got Bruce Banner's intelligence. But that would happen in the 60s, too, that occasionally he would get Bruce Banner's intelligence. He wouldn't have Bruce Banner's intelligence. He would be transforming because of day or night or transforming because of rage or transforming because of other reasons. They really (laughs) are flying by the seat of their pants here with the Hulk. But let's go ahead and talk about this first issue. So this first issue was inked by Paul Reinman. Paul Reinman is my favorite of the early Kirby inkers. Yes. He has sort of a chunky, clean sort of look. I don't know if that makes any sense uh, to folks or not, but uh, it seems to describe him to me. And uh, the thing is, the combination of Kirby and Reinman in this era actually, in many ways, really reminds me of Steve Rude from time to time. It does. Yeah, so Steve Rude is a penciler who became famous in the 80s doing an independent comic called Nexus that was doing great stuff when we were teenagers. And Steve Rude is an extremely talented artist. When I was a teenager, not really understanding what his obsession was with Jack Kirby. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, you're such a fantastic artist. Why are you trying to draw like Jack Kirby? This is very much the stuff that I think he was trying to ape. Yeah. On the very first page, we get introduced to Bruce Banner and this other scientist who's like getting on his case about like not liking how he's doing things. And this guy's name is Igor. So this is, this is 1962 and you've got a scientist in a military base named Igor. What do you bet he turns out to be a red spy? Yes. He's like, I still, I still say you should have confided in us, your fellow scientists. You should have told us the secret of the gamma ray. And it's yeah. like, hmm, I wonder why he wants to know the secret of the gamma ray, Igor. <laughs> right. It's not like we can hear his, his accent, but the fact that he's called Igor, you know, you get a mole all the way up in the secret <laughs> government program and you don't bother to get an American name for it. My name is Bobby. I am an American man. So we meet Bruce Banner. He is, of course, smoking a pipe when we first see him to show us that he is a scientist. He is in a lab <laughs> coat. He is wearing glasses. He is a nerdy guy. He is meek and mild-mannered. Then his boss, Thunderbolt Ross, comes in constantly screaming, screaming in all three of the first panels we see him. Got a big white walrus mustache. And then we meet General Thunderbolt Ross's daughter, who has, oh, the indignity, a crush on Bruce Banner. And she could not look more like Jackie Kennedy here. She has... <laughs> She is wearing Jackie Kennedy's pink. She is wearing that signature coat, and she is wearing an actual, I think that would be a pillbox hat. Is that how you would refer to that? I I would absolutely call it a pillbox hat, yes. A pillbox hat. So his very Jacqueline Kennedy-esque daughter has crush on Bruce Banner, which he is not happy about. Bruce Banner is testing his G-bomb. He is testing his gamma bomb. I got to say, if you're going to invent a made-up nuclear weapon, gamma rays aren't the most ridiculous thing to have. We've got a hydrogen bomb. You could have a gamma bomb. If you're going to have one thing that the whole series is going to ride on for the next 60 years, gamma rays, gamma radiation, why not? 100%. I am with you on that. I was a physics minor in college. And so oftentimes with the various techno babble they'll throw out here, I will have a field day with it. Partially because they'll try to throw some things out that sound vaguely like actual science, and that will just make it much worse. When it comes to gamma rays, no, that's that gamma rays is basically everything on the spectrum up past ultraviolet or something like that. So I mean, it's like high energy radiation, and it's the stuff that you'll die of radiation poisoning from. It's a real thing, but it's vague enough 
that you can still do some cool stuff. That was a, a lucky, lucky shot. So then Bruce Banner goes ahead and schedules the test of the G-Mom, and then he sees a kid in a hot rod. Once again, just like Johnny with his hot rods, we have a kid in a hot rod named Rick Jones who has taken a dare and has driven out onto the bomb testing site. And he's like, you, get out of there. You're in a forbidden test area. Going, cool it, man. The kids bit me. I wouldn't have the nerve to sneak past the guards. So then he's kicking back in his hot rod, blowing his harmonica, which is what the kids do. And <laughs> then Bruce Banner grabs him and says, hey, what are you trying to do, Wink? Make them think I'm chicken? Go on, you fool. You've got to reach the protective trench before the bomb goes off. They've sort of gone back and forth over the years of how intentional this was. But it says, meanwhile, at the bunker, not having been told to delay the firing, a finger touches the fatal button. Three, two, one, zero, fire. There you're safe. And now I'll, ah. And then he, and it's a really beautiful sequence here. I mean, first of all, just. it's, It's genuinely horrifying. Genuinely horrifying. And just this image of. Rick down in the ditch while Bruce gets hit by the radiation is become a classic image. It got redrawn thousands of times <laughs> over the years. And then you see him just absolutely looking horrified. The world seems to stand still, trembling on the brink of infinity as the ear-splitting scream fills the air. And then we cut to him, and he is still screaming hours later. And there's a match cut on the face as he's still screaming hours later. And it is powerful storytelling. It really is. I mean, this is top-notch stuff. One thing I'll point out is that that fourth panel on this page where the gamma bomb actually goes off, as you say, this panel has been reproduced dozens upon dozens of times over the years. And almost always it ends up showing up as like a half-page panel or a full-page flash. But here it's just one-ninth of the page. Right. Yeah. And yet this sequence has in some ways more power than any of the retellings really have. Part of it is because it's part of a sequence, because you see the bomb going off behind him. You see the radiation passing through him. You see terror and the pain and the horror on his face. And then you see him still screaming like his face has been frozen that way in a constant scream for hours. You know, it really is chilling. But you were talking about whether or not Igor had done this on purpose. Right before, on the last panel on page three, he says, what a stroke of luck. All I have to do is keep my finger off the hold button. It'll be the end of Bruce Banner. So I think they're pretty clear here. He didn't necessarily hit the button, but he deliberately didn't tell anyone that Banner was out there. Right. Although probably not the the best long-term solution, given that if you've got a spy and with Banner, you generally want Banner to keep producing so that you can keep spying on it. But, you know, yeah, unless it's more of an active agent thing, like, you know, hey, let's take out their top scientists so he can't keep inventing for them. I mean, I, I could see it going either way. He is brought back and he's in observation. They're keeping in basically a cell and Bruce is freaking out thinking, you know, it's like there's keeping in here until I die. There's a Geiger counter that's in the corner that starts going crazy as the, <laughs> but as the Rick movie, mm-hmm. but but Rick just says this whole world's going batty even this kooky radio it won't play oh it's giving out a static and Bruce says that's no radio it's a Geiger counter it measures radiation listen to it it's going wild this implies that he actually gives off gamma radiation when he changes into the Hulk which right. is something that they kind of play around with that a little bit for these six issues but then it kind of goes away after that right once again with the, the physics minor part of me it's like how is it that he would be giving off radiation <laughs> but then I'm like Steve stop yes <laughs> not, stop 
<laughs> so anyway, the, the moon came up. He turns into the Hulk. First thing he says is the Hulk is, get out of my way, insect. Then he, he is using I. Where am I? Why am I locked in here? I want to get out. Of course, in the Hulk that we knew by the time we made it to the 80s was, Hulk no like this. Hulk smash. You know? Right. He... Turns into the Hulk, bats Rick Jones away, he goes out into the night. The Ari is searching for him, which will be the basic backbone of this series for a long time. But within the cabin, the man called Igor is so intent upon a secret task, he doesn't hear the muffled footsteps drawing nearer and nearer. The gamma ray formula must be here somewhere. An intruder, well, you will not live to report Igor to the security police. He shoots the Hulk, the bullets just bounce off him, he crushes the gun, he is tossing Igor around, and it turns out that Igor has taped to the bottom of a flask, top secret report on the gamma ray bomb, which, first of all, I'm not sure a glass flask is the best place to hide that on the bottom of. It turns out they realize that at this point, Igor is a Soviet spy, Then at this point, the Hulk sees a picture of Bruce Banner, says, that face, I I know that face, but it is weak, soft, I hate it, take it away. Rick John's like, you can't hate it, don't you understand the guy in this picture before he changed was you? I I would like to argue with one thing that you said, if I could, for a moment here. Top secret report on Gamma Ray Bomb. My reading of that was that those were Banner's notes that Igor was searching for. That was where yes. Banner hid his notes, and then Igor was looking for the secret. That was my interpretation of that. I can very much see your interpretation of that as well. Even though the Hulk would not really fall into his verbal patterns for, for a number of more years, he does say puny humans on page nine. There you go. Which is not something that really crops up again for another few years. But his very first puny humans was right there in his first issue. They really haven't gotten the whole Hulk we know and love down in that he is not transforming due to anger. He is transforming at first due to it being nighttime and then due to it being daytime. Very much later, they were retconning this as going like, oh, you know, he was afraid of the dark. And that was what uh, (laughs) he had a deep-seated fear of the darkness that came from childhood trauma. And that was why he transformed when it got dark and not when the sun came So they were trying to make that retroactively emotional, but it was for the most part not emotional. He was just transforming. It was more of a Jekyll and Hyde type story. They were tying it to nighttime. So then Betty shows up. They have fun with the different soldiers describing the monster in different ways. (laughs) The soldiers find the wreckage that the Hulk left behind and they go, what, Captain? It's Igor, the spy we've been searching for. It says, get him to a doctor. He must have been in league with the Hulk. So somehow they've already caught Igor. Rick didn't even have to report that Igor was a spy. They have discovered this independently, I guess. Like, oh, wow, maybe we shouldn't have trusted this guy who has a Russian name. (laughs) (laughs) So Igor is in prison, and he turns out he has a pretty cool looking, for they do not suspect that pasted onto my thumbnail is a sub-miniature transistor shortwave sending set. So we have the first mention of one of Stan Lee's favorite words, transistor. Meanwhile, uh, one thing I, I want to point out that we sort of uh, rolled over. Did you notice when the Hulk was about to murder Rick? Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, let's go back to that. <laughs> All right. So on page 11, right as the sun is starting to rise, the Hulk says, as for you, you are the only one who knows who I really am. And Rick says, what? What do you mean? As the Hulk is walking to him. And then he transforms into Bruce Banner. And I'm like, dude, I think that the Hulk was about to <laughs> Just straight murder Rick right there. Generally speaking, Rick is always much more into the Hulk than the Hulk is into Rick. Rick is already feeling like because Bruce Banner became the Hulk trying to save him from the nuclear bomb test that he then owes it to be the Hulk's friend, even though the Hulk is 
never a very good friend back to him. And this is <laughs> maybe the ultimate example of that you were just citing. <laughs> Bruce Banner gets along better with Rick. They are working together. They're covering for each other right away. In Hulk's defense, nobody is as into Rick as Rick is into them. <laughs> this, this, is, this is true later with Captain America. So then we cut to Igor in a cell. He's got a transistor-powered sub-miniature transistor shortwave sending set under his thumb. He contacts... The Soviet Union, the first mention of many mentions of the Iron Curtain. So I've been reading these comics to my six-year-old son. I guess I started reading them to him when he was five, and then when he's six, and now he's seven. I always have to explain to him. They use a lot of different phrases that are essentially interchangeable. They use the communists, the commies, the reds, the Soviets, the Russians, and the number one thing they always say, behind the Iron Curtain. And I've yes. tried to explain to him a little bit about what the Iron Curtain is. And then in later issues, you get the Bamboo Curtain. <laughs> when yes. the Black Widow is going spying in China, China is referred to as being a country that is behind the bamboo curtain. So this is a little unclear here. He's sending a message to behind the Iron Curtain, an evil Soviet villain, Kelly Gargoyle, who is mentioned as being the most fearsome villain in all of Asia. Yes, I noticed that. But this is clearly the Soviet Union, because, I mean, there's a picture of Khrushchev on the wall on page 16, and yes. then in, in the office of somebody who looks for all the world like Trotsky. So, yes. you know. Is Moscow considered to be in Asia or Europe? No, no, it's in Europe. The Ural Mountains are the border, and it is west of the Ural Mountains. Right. There's the um, orientalizing of the Soviet Union here where it's yes. referred to as being Asian. So then the message is sent to the Soviet Union. It turns out that they have a brilliant, monstrous guy working at the Soviet Union called the Gargoyle. So now we get something paying off from the Fantastic Four issue we just read. There's lots of traveling back and forth between the Soviet Union and Southwest America here. This is the Gargoyle. Prepare a rocket-firing sub for immediate departure. That is all. He gets into a missile, which shoots him all the way to the Southwest. He lands. He takes Hulk and Richter captive. He manages to get them all the way back to the Soviet Union. Let's just deal for a moment with the fact that a Soviet sub launched a missile into the continental United States. <laughs> and yes, it was shot down successfully by our Hunter missiles, which are still technology that don't really exist, or I guess they do now. But I, I still don't think they've come up with anything that can do it for ICBMs, though. Right. Oh, yeah. Okay. So things then just move along with the plot. We're not going <laughs> to deal with the fact that the U.S. just had to shoot down a Soviet missile from a nuclear sub. You know? Right. <laughs> it seems like there could have been more efficient plotting here in terms of actually having to get the gargoyle all the way over to America and then all three of them all the way over to the Soviet Union and then Rick and the Hulk all home in one issue, which is a lot of people moving for one <laughs> issue. Finally, in the early hours before daybreak, the rendezvous is reached. They are paddling a little Soviet um, raft with a little Soviet star on it out to a Soviet sub. They once again take off in a missile-type rocket to go to the Soviet Union. Gargoyle takes one look at the situation. Okay, clearly Bruce Banner and the Hulk are the same person. And <laughs> he, he's got all the same information that General Thunderbolt Ross has, and yet he is able to put together the situation much quicker than anybody back home is. Of course, you're going to go for a long period in the comics where only three people are going to know that Hulk and Bruce Banner are the same person. Bruce Banner is going to know, Rick Jones is going to know, and Lyndon B. Johnson is going to know. For, and that is going to be the setup for a long time where the only other person that knows is Lyndon B. Johnson, who appears several times in the comics as the only other person who knows the Hulk's secret identity. I but did 
not remember that. We now have the one person who is as smart as Lyndon B. Johnson, <laughs> and that is the gargoyle who very quickly figures out the secret identity here. Bruce Banner reveals the gargoyle. Oh, yeah, I know how to use radiation to make you into not a monster. And he's like, wait, what? You can? Well, forget all my evil plans. Let's do that. Let's make me not a monster. <laughs> and suddenly he becomes a normal human after Bruce Banner hooks up a ray to treat him. And then now that he's a normal human, it says, and where a gargoyle had been lying, a man arises and he sits up. He says, you did it. You did it. And then luckily he's got that big picture of Khrushchev on his wall. And he goes up to the picture of Khrushchev on his wall and says, it was because of you that I became what I was, because I worked on your secret bomb test, but it took an American to cure me. And now, now that I am no longer a gargoyle, I can defy you and all you stand for, like a man. So in later comics, Khrushchev would become a character. We would get to hear Khrushchev get actual dialogue in later comics. In this comic, he's just a picture on the wall. The gargoyle, who is now a human, sends Rick. So yet a third journey by missile in this book. (laughs) Rick and Bruce go home, and the gargoyle blows up everybody back at the base. He says, come in, comrades. I've been expecting you. Who are you? I was once he whom you called the gargoyle. But now I'm a man again. No longer brilliant. No longer a scientific genius. My work is done. And so I shall die. But I shall die as a man. And they go, don't trigger that switch. And he blows them all up. The including himself. Bruce and Rick see the explosion going off behind them. They say, it's the end of the gargoyle. And perhaps... The beginning of the end of Red Tyranny, too. <laughs> the Cold War paranoia in this first, like, maybe two years of it is really, really just pervasive. I was not alive then, but our dad has talked about how utterly terrifying the Cuban Missile Crisis was, which was not that long after this. And tensions really were quite high. But, I, but even in this issue, the Communist Menace turns out to be a complex three-dimensional character who is turned in the end and is redeemed. So you're not just doing monstrous Soviet, well, he is literally a monstrous Soviet villain, but but a monster who turns out to uh, be human on the inside and gets turned into humans. It's cartoonish, but it is not what it could be. There are a lot of things in these first several years in Marvel that you could take some criticism on them, but they really could have been bad, and they weren't. You know, it's like, (laughs) we're going to be getting forward into stuff. I mean, yes, there are going to be some Asian caricatures, some of which are not that okay. Just think of what other Chinese characters looked like in other comics. Yes. Chop Chop over in Blackhawk. Marvel comics were way ahead of DC comics in this aspect as well. Although, yes, we're certainly going to run into problematic things when they go behind the bamboo curtain in later issues. All right. I think this is a lot of fun. I think the Marvel Universe has really expanded at this point. We saw all of those ad nauseum house ads in the Fantastic Four for the upcoming Hulk comic. There was a (laughs) sense that you are expected to buy more than one comic every month now. This is the real Marvel Universe, and we are off to the races. Where we turned a corner. We are really starting to come into some of the real ingredients that make the Marvel Universe different than other comics out there but all still Stan and Jack. So at this point, it's just two guys who have done all six comics we have read so far. And eventually we will get to some more people very quickly. But so far, it is these two geniuses, Stan and Jack, who are turning out masterpiece after masterpiece here. Thanks so much for doing this with me. We will see you soon, America. We're (laughs) we're actually going to be within earshot of you soon. And you're actually going to get to hear these first three episodes, hopefully before we record a fourth one. We'll see. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you soon, America. And anywhere else, too. You know, you can be listening from other countries. That's fine. Unlike Matt, who apparently is a jingoist and just wants you to listen in America. I welcome everybody. If we don't do it first, then the commies will do it, Steve. (laughs) 
Yeah, we're, we're not even the first non-commies to do this podcast. <laughs> if, if you are listening to this behind the Iron Curtain, if you're listening to this behind the Bamboo Curtain, then welcome, and we hope that you listening to this is the end of tyranny. All right. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, talk to you soon, America. Bye. All right, bye. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.